Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. There have been over 330 of them now, and you can find them all archived and categorized in various ways at batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. Uh, we appreciate the financial support of those who feel inspired to offer it. There's a donate button on the site that enables us to do this show. So my guest today is Della. She has a last name, but she's just going to go by Della. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Della had the good fortune of a life that many would have wanted to live. She grew up in a loving environment. She went to college. She started a family. She became a doctor and worked in an emergency room. She wasn't looking for anything. She didn't have any spiritual beliefs. She was happy. Then, in 2005, during a hypnosis session, she had what could be described as a near-death experience. Her heart was deeply touched by oneness and its unconditional love. Her life was turned upside down by this experience. With this free and loving presence breathing inside of her, all of her identity was put into question. Gradually, she had to surrender to the reality that we are one and that no label, belief, or knowledge is needed for being, capital B. Her website is DellaInvitation.com. So that was uh, some hypnosis session you had there. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> had you been doing hypnosis already for a bit, or was that like your first time you ever tried it? No, it was my first time, in, in fact. I went uh, the week before to see a psychologist because there was kind of a situation in the family, and I was wondering if I could help. And the psychologist said, well, maybe we could do just a hypnosis session and see what comes out of there. And I said, fine. So when we started the session, he said, well, do you have a question before entering uh, this session? And I said, yes, uh, how can I radiate peace in my house? So that was a question. So I went through this beautiful experience and it transformed my life. Please try to describe the experience itself in a little bit more detail. It's not, it seems like even now it, it moves you to think about it. So try to give us a, a glimpse of, of what you actually experienced. Well, uh, I went into, um, let's say there were many stairs and I had to go to the 10th level. I don't know. This was um, the suggestion of the psychologist. And then uh, I opened the big doors and there were this tunnel of light and I went through the tunnel of light and I went out of this body and I became, I don't know, a, a being of light. And there were others there with me, surrounding me with this love. And after that, it just melted in just oneness and consciousness. There was just this beautiful, unconditional love where everything is perfect. So that was really a really intense experience at that moment. And when I came back up there in my body, I was just weeping, you know, it was just so intense. But the experience subsided afterwards. It took about 24 hours to come back home <laughs> here. But then this uh, unconditional love never left. It, it, it's just part of who we are, who, who we all are. After this experience, I was accompanied with a, a voice. So there was a voice within me for about two years after that. 
And the invitation of that voice was always, would I be ready to love and give away my identity, my gifts, because there were many gifts given after that, like seeing auras and becoming the other, seeing past lives and all those experiences that are different than what we used to experience. But there were only experiences. So uh, the invitation was to, was to let them go. Well, let me it ask you a about, couple of things here. So yeah, first of yeah. all, when you went into that state, which you say is akin to a near-death experience, and some beings met you or something, were, were those like deceased loved ones or did, did you not know who they were? No, there was no uh, personal identity associated to them. It was just beings. Hmm, like just some beings of light. Could you describe them or were they just kind of amorphous, like clouds of light or something? It was more light beings. There was no special form. It was just more a sense of connection with those beings than, than connection to form. Had you ever had anything when you were a little child that was out of the ordinary? Or was this like the first thing that ever happened to you that was a far out experience? Well, when I was a child, I could see auras uh, quite easily. Yeah. And then uh, after that, you know, the adults uh, said that that was not possible. So I stopped seeing them <laughs> about, I, I was eight years old and I stopped seeing them. So then that was the first time after that, that uh, I could open up again from the age of eight or whatever until this happened, by which time you were a doctor and everything, had your life remained pretty sane and stable and smooth or had you gone through you know, crazy teenage years and all that kind of thing? No, I, I was, um, it, it was a simple life. Simple, I would say even loving life, mm -hmm. easy life. Uh, you know, I was good at school. Uh, I had a loving husband and family. I loved my job. There was not much to worry about. So this voice that you started having after this experience, how would you characterize that? Was it just sort of an intuitive impulse? Was it speaking to you in, in French? Or, you know, what, what, was it, what was the quality or nature of that voice? It wasn't French. It felt like something higher talking to me. But at the same time, there was not much separation between what I would hear and what I would receive. I think it was only a guidance there, just uh, inviting me to let go of identity. And it was very, very patient. So if I was not ready to let go of something, I would feel kind of a smile and it, it would wait mm -hmm. and it would come back. You know, it was just so patient, so yeah. patient with me. So it was beautiful. Yeah. Do, you have, do you have a feeling that it was a spirit guide or something that was in any way different from you, or was it actually just your own higher self or some higher intuitive aspect of who and what you are? I guess at the beginning it felt kind of different than I, but after time it was just all the same. Everything is just all the same. So uh, I was not able to differentiate between what was different and what was reality you know there this had faded away along the time and so meanwhile i mean you said it took about 24 hours to come down from the initial experience and then obviously you had children you had your job and all that stuff so you probably had to carry on with those responsibilities 
how did your orientation to the world change? I mean, were you like walking around as if a whole new person in a way, um, you know, a whole new perception of your children, whole new, whole new interaction in your job, or was it more vague and subtle than that? It was very intimate to start with, so there was not a lot of changes to be observed from the outside. When it started at, in 2005, the intensity of it became more clearer uh, at the end of 2006 and 2007. There I went through this identification quite deep, mm. so I could not recognize my kids. Uh, I would go to the grocery store with my kids because they would put things in the basket because I had no idea what this was all about. Mm -hmm. But I could totally observe that I could drive, I could go somewhere. Life it was living, but there was no one on board to... Well, there was someone on board because I, I could do things, but the identification to logic and thinking was not there. So at that moment, I was able to work uh, every other week. Only able to because you just were not capable of doing more? Is that why you were only able to? No, uh, it was a choice, but it was very difficult at the time to, uh, to work because I was working in a big emergency in Montreal in 2005, and then we left for New Zealand to work in the small uh, country hospital, which was really nice because it was not busy. So I didn't need to use my mind too much mm. to work. You know, there was those reflexes that were fine. But at the same time, it was very difficult for me to work because uh, patients coming in were just perfect. So that, for me, there was nothing to fix. Mm. So it was really difficult to play that game of being sick. So if somebody came in with a broken leg or a ruptured appendix, you would think, eh, they're just perfect the way they are? Well, in a sense, in my heart, it felt like it was perfect and life was taking care of everything else. So it doesn't mean that you don't attend a broken leg. It just means that things are just done prior to the idea that we have to fix something and someone is fixing something. It's just obvious that life is taking care of everything in different forms. So being someone who's taking care of something was just very foreign to me. But then you are part of life. So even if you don't, didn't regard yourself as someone taking care of, of stuff, you were part of life taking care of stuff. Couldn't you say that? That's true. Uh, so I can continue to work for a while. But after a while, in October 2007, I went to work one morning and there was nothing left in my brain associated to medical knowledge. So that was something really important that shifted in my life. And the voice just told me, are you ready to let go of that too? So I could not prescribe a Tylenol. I, I had no idea what the patients would have, which is... <laughs> kind of scary, but at the same time, it was just so obvious that I just had to let go of that kind of knowledge. A couple of questions. One is, from the time of your initial awakening, did you engage in a mad scramble to figure out what had happened to you and start reading all kinds of books and things like that? Or did you somehow just know what had happened to you? I had no idea what was happening to me. I didn't know any spiritual 
I haven't read anything. So I thought, sometimes I thought I was in psychosis mm -hmm. because of all those extreme experiences. So my surroundings also thought I was in psychosis. Meaning people around you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They thought yeah. you'd gone crazy. Well, I, you know, I'm from a medical background too. So of course, those kind of experiences don't fit in a book. So I was kind of uncomfortable with what I was going through. Sometimes it would be very painful because there was this ego who, who wanted to know what was happening and wanted to stay on board. And so there was kind of a fight. But my brother, Brother Don, was uh, really close to me during that time. And he had some knowledge in spirituality. So he, he just was my... Uh, beacon light towards the journey telling me that that it was okay you know it's just after all the thing went through that i i received a um, video of adya shanti and when i watched the video i said okay i'm not crazy you know kind of a kind of a real funny feeling you know that this was really something possible and uh, so it was reassuring to have that video. And I went after that a couple of days in retreat in Australia with Adya Shanti. And it was just so soothing, you know, just to, yeah, I, I don't know, just to bath in, in, in this evidence. Oh, sure. So. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, because there are stories of people. One of the kind of more dramatic ones is this woman named Suzanne Siegel, who wrote this book called Collision with the Infinite. And she underwent a really radical, abrupt awakening like that. And even though she had a spiritual background, she was even a meditation teacher, what she experienced was so different than what she had anticipated or understood that she had no idea what it was. And, and she lived in a state of abject terror for about 10 years until she finally relaxed and accepted that it was something good. Jean Klein helped her make that shift. I guess it's just worth mentioning that because there are probably other people out there having experiences like this who haven't necessarily yet found any kind of reassurance or guidance as to what's happening to them and they could even end up in hospitals and you know, mental hospitals and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I just uh, read an article last week on Facebook about uh, an article in the um, in psychology and it was difference between psychosis and awakening mm. which was really really interesting for me you know so many years after to see that there was something written on that uh, and on internet available so anyway it was really interesting for me to have yeah i'd like to see that article you should maybe forward it to me and i'll i'll check it out um, sure in fact maybe people listening would like to see it too i could even i don't know could post it on your on your page on Batgap or something if people are interested, or you could put it on your Facebook page. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, uh, people I, can go there. Yeah. Was there a lot of struggle with within you in terms of uh, having to let go of your profession and things like that? Were you kind of like battling it and and trying to hang on and trying to keep it together on that level? Yeah, there's of course there was a, a part of me who was. Uh, trying to do something with that but at the same time there was a knowing a deep knowing that i had no choice yeah so uh i guess one of the things that was very difficult for me is to let go of medicine because i loved my job and it took about eight months 
when the knowledge left me, it took about eight months for me to uh, to go through um, the process of, of um, when someone dies, you know, you go through grieving, uh, grieving. Yeah. So it took about eight months for me to go through that process of letting go of that. And after that, it was it just become really simple. Really, did, really did other things in your life fall apart? I mean, your marriage, did that happen? Yeah, this yeah. fell apart too. Because um, you, you just didn't get what was going on? Well, there was many things, but you know, I was very free also. Uh, there was this conditioning that was gone. And of course, there was a part that I was uh, seen as kind of a crazy lady and all that. So there was many factors that came to that ending. But it was just part of what I had to go through, which is beautiful now. How many kids do you have? Three. And what do they think about you now? Well, they are very, both girls are really, really close to me and uh, we have beautiful contact. My son is interested in what I'm teaching. You know, there's a curiosity, but there's also a distance, but uh, there's a lot of love. Yeah. There's a lot of love. That's beautiful. I think we all are being transformed with what we live. So it's, it's beautiful. What would you say to people who hear your story and who think, you know, I don't know if I actually want to go for this awakening <laughs> business because I don't want my life to fall apart. You know, I like my job. I like my family. I'm afraid that if I have an awakening, it's all going to fall apart. What would you say to them? <laughs> I would say, well, if it's going to happen, you, there's no choice. And, you know, if the calling within is so strong, those questions will arise. And, you know, we have the freedom to say yes, and we have the freedom to say no. But if the yearning is there, it's going to come back. Nothing has to fall apart. I don't think everything has to fall apart. But sometimes it does have to yeah. fall apart. So. so in other words, some people in your understanding might undergo a profound radical inner awakening and their outer life might not appear to change at all. And other people might be more like you where everything changes. Yes, I think so too. And would you say that's because some people have a, a calling that is not congruent with their current lifestyle, such as yours, uh, such as you did? And whereas other people don't have that calling and they'll be perfectly happy continuing to be an enlightened electrician or something? I don't know. I could not say. Really, I could not say. I was really, I felt really aligned with my life before and I feel really aligned with my life now. So I don't know. I think there was a part of me that could not exist in my prior life with this change in my life. So I don't know. Yeah. It's difficult uh, to put in a box, you know, it's, it's different from one person to another. Yeah, and that was kind of a boxy question that I asked, but um, I guess I just asked it to reassure people, to just sort of set your, if you have a choice, if you feel an inspiration or an aspiration for spiritual development and spiritual awakening, go for it and don't worry about the consequences, it'll all be for the best and it doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to change radically in your outer life, but they may, but if they do, it'll be for the best. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> I think it's fine. Of course, the spiritual path is scary for identification. 
I think that's true. That's the reality of things because identification does not exist. So, uh, of course, there is something really scary, but identification can also exist and the soul, of course, exists through the process. So it can be gentle. It doesn't have to be hard, but we can question with authenticity and love what we share most, what is the most precious thing in our lives that we want to go through. You know, if we want to see through identification, of course, identification won't like it. Why don't you define identification for the sake of the viewers? Well, identification is, is all the, the idea we have on, on oneself about uh, who we are in life, uh, our name, our family, our work, all the characters we play to be to be loved uh, from outside, uh, to be in security, all those characters we play that is that are kind of uh, limiting all the time, but it's because it, it creates security, which is which is good. So, of course, when we realize that we are free of that, or when we wish to realize that we are free of that, well, it's going to be a challenge to look at all those identifications and see if they're still necessary or not in our lives. It sounds like in your case, identification even included things like broccoli and, and spinach and cereal because you had to take your kids to the grocery store because you didn't know what to, what to put in the cart. Yeah, yeah, that was amazing. You know, even at that point, I could just realize that everything was going great. You know, everything was going the way it was supposed to go, even if I was not there. You know, there was nothing there to to take control of that, which was amazing. So you were kind of on autopilot. So to speak. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Would one way of describing what happened to you be to say that there was a radical falling away of the sense of a personal self or a personal me? Yeah, it was a radical transformation, but that lasted on time. It took about a couple of years to let go of everything. It ended after realizing that I, I had a lot of beautiful experiences of light. And at one point I made meditation and I asked that all those gifts were taken away from me. There was nothing necessary to add to the simple reality of, of what is. So uh, about 36 hours later, it just left me. It, it, there was a, this flow of energy going out of me for about two hours. And when I came back from that experience, I could recognize what was a kitchen for and what was a fork for, and I could recognize my kids. And so it was just an amazing, amazing experience to see how beautiful ordinary reality is. So just to clarify, so when you said you're ha having all kinds of beautiful experiences of light, I presume you mean like auras and angels and nice flashy experiences, right? Yeah. And so you, you realize that those things were not, not necessary, right? Yes. And then when you say you asked them to be taken away and then they, they left and then you could recognize what a kitchen is and what a fork is, did you mean to say that before they were taken away you had a hard time recognizing what a kitchen is and what a fork is? I had no idea what it was for. Really? So does that mean you were so kind of caught up in or engaged in these beautiful experiences of light that 
you had a really hard time recognizing and interacting with ordinary reality. Is that what you mean to say? Yeah, it was kind of a, the attention went to the extraordinary, the extraordinary things. I see. So you'd be in your kitchen, for instance, and there'd be angels or something. You'd be all caught up in that to the point where you weren't able to interact properly with the ordinary kitchen that was there. Yeah, well, there were no angels, but... Or whatever was, these yeah, experiences the, the, were, yeah. Yeah, the attention was, was elsewhere. So, uh -huh. yeah, I, I had no idea what it was a kitchen for, which is interesting. That's strange. I mean, it must have been very hard to function. If you didn't know what a kitchen for, how were you, was for, how were you even eating? I guess it, it was eating. Most of the, the food was prepared by my husband at that time because I was not really... Uh, I could not organize my mind to cook something, which was okay. You know, there was not a lot of problem with that, but I, I could totally see that it was functioning fine. Just yeah. wasn't functioning so much in this world. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, you know, even my kids did not realize that I was going through all those experiences because the the mother role seemed to be fine mm. from their point of view, which was curious because I was living something totally different. Yeah. So mm. when was that, about 2008 or nine or something, when you asked for the, the beautiful experiences to go away or give 2007. Us 2007, yeah, oh, July. Right. So yes. nine years ago almost. And ever since then, it's just been simple reality. Yeah. Can you imagine or envision a, a time when those experiences returned again and it was it's sort of like that stuff is going on but but you're so grounded in the simple reality of what is that you have no problem functioning or do you think that they'll probably never return and, and you, you wouldn't even want them to well they can be there anytime they need to be there but that's all there is to add to that part of reality if it's there it's just there and there's nothing to do with with that it's just another let's say expansion of, of, of the same reality, which is there too. But you don't need to make a story about that and, and make something special about that. It's just another simple reality plan. A little icing on the cake, as they say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you pretty much gave up being a doctor. Now you're a spiritual teacher. So how did, how did you ease into becoming a spiritual teacher? I guess you would call yourself a spiritual teacher. Um, how, how did you start transitioning into that? Did people start asking you questions or something and you started talking to them and one thing led to the next or what? I was quite silent for a couple of years. Uh, no impulse to do anything except maybe sharing Adyashanti's video at my place because of this aloneness I had during the transition. Mm -hmm. But finally, I didn't do that either. I just went to someone who was offering videos to streets from where I was leaving. Adyashanti videos? Yeah. So I met those people and I, I spoke about my experience and then someone heard about my experience and made me meet someone who was giving satsang. And uh, when, he, when we met, he said, well, why don't you give the four days retreat with me? this weekend and I said who was that do you mind I, my asking it's Mikael Zyper oh, I don't know him no. I was there for the four days retreat and I didn't say a word I think for four days <laughs> because there was nothing to say you know <laughs> so I it was just really sat funny. there 
I just sat there and uh, finally uh, I I was asked to give satsangs and uh, to give retreats and that's the way it just started. So when you started giving satsangs and retreats did you feel like you had very much to say or was it hard for you to like fill up the time with actually talking? When I, I would arrive always saying that I was that there was nothing to say and then people would ask questions and then it, it would talk. It had something to say obviously because it was talking. So yes, today I think there's so many things to say and at the same time there's nothing to say. But from a human incarnation point of view, I think there's a lot to say, there's a lot to discover and uh, mm. to let go, to have the mind help us to let go of things, mm -hmm. which is really interesting. What are some of the main things you say when you talk to people, when you give retreats or satsangs? What are some of your key points or most important points? I think the first key point is that everything arises from love. Mm -hmm. The ego, everything we, we think that is not good or that should be transformed, everything is an impulse of love from an intimate point of view. So that is for me really important to realize because uh, it helps to stop the fight against reality. Mm. So that's the first thing. And the other thing the, that I emphasize on is the security guards we create, the security guards of separation. That is a constant energy that is there to create the idea of separation. So that is really interesting to identify those because we think that we don't want freedom, we, we want to control, but that's not who we are. That's the guardians of separation that do that. It's not who we are. So it's really interesting to see that we are uh, the masters. When I say we, it's like our inner soul is totally free of those guardians. So it's really interesting to see this mechanism. Uh, so we're free of that, so yeah. we're free. Now, in your case, you weren't looking for this, and it just sort of came, happened to you, and yeah. uh, you had it just sort of you had no control over it. It just happened. Uh, mm. But when you give a retreat or a satsang, there's a room full of people. Um, yeah. It hasn't just happened to them necessarily, and they are looking for it. They're there because they want what you have. How successful do you feel it is to give descriptions like the one you just gave, and actually? convey something to those people or be a catalyst so that something of the so, so that the experiential quality of the words that you just spoke can be enlivened in them rather than having it just be an intellectual concept that's taken in through the words okay for me i'm talking to the heart from the the most intimate part which is uh free of all the concepts. So if the yearning is there, it's not a mental yearning. Mm. It is something more deeper inside. And so when we connect with this part, this intimate part, there is something that can be seen through the veil, you know, that can be recognized and can be seen through the veil. Of course, it's important to point that awakening is some is most of the time a wish to, of of the ego, okay? Because they want to get something else than reality, and that's a loving impulse too. You know, we just want to be free, but it's more like a an, for me uh, the real path is opening the heart to reality as it is and see 
what we put in the way of just being touched by reality because it's a protection and we can be more vigilant to see what we put in the way of this beauty that is already here. I think a lot of people want awakening because they're suffering. Like the guy I interviewed last week, he just went through years where he felt like he was really suffering and you know he just was dying to get out of that suffering you know and finally he had a breakthrough and he feels more relieved now but what do we put in the way and how much control do we have over is it a simple voluntary thing to not put it in the way anymore or does it take time and deconditioning process i guess it depends on people uh, i usually try to see what is the true intention of the moment because if you want something else then this reality is going to be interesting to look at that because if you want to change for example in your life the changes can occur here in taking the risk of seeing the refusal that is here in the moment and this refusal is perfect because it's there in the moment it's protecting something but can there be enough love in the heart to include this refusal and go and see beyond in the presence that's there can it embrace this refusal it's the invitation to recognize the presence that is already here but i guess if the ego really wants to have a change a concrete change in the future well then it avoids the invitation to come back home in that moment of course it's, it's always an open chance every second to open to presence. Uh, I don't know if this would be possible for you, but would it be possible to remember a specific person you worked with and where they were resisting in some way and you helped them to break through that and they, they let go of the blockage that they were putting between themselves and, and reality and underwent some shift? Is it, can you think of an example? Uh, that's a difficult question. It's a problem with memory, which is a yeah. a concern for me. <laughs> yeah, we just arrived from a month retreat in Ecuador, mm. which is a, a beautiful opportunity on the long term because after a few days, there are some opening and, and vulnerability coming up. After that, there are waves of the guardians coming in because they say, whoa, 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 vulnerability is dangerous. So, and there's another wave coming in and then we open up to what is this refusal? What is at stake here? You know, what is at stake? And then it opens again. And so there's this beautiful way of fighting and letting go and fighting and letting go. And the more you're conscious of, about this movement, you taste that a freedom that is just so sweet of looking at all those reaction of refusal of reality. And, and then it can be totally embraced which is the most beautiful gift we can offer ourselves. That's nice. So you pretty much see everybody going through this kind of pattern, fighting, letting go, fighting, letting go. Yeah. How many people were on the retreat? 33, I think. That's pretty good for a whole month. Yeah, well, 33 for the first 10 days, which was an intensive and then 25 stayed for the whole month. So by the end of the retreat, how do you think people were compared to at the beginning of the retreat? Really a pretty profound transformation for most of them? Well, I guess it would be better to ask them. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but 
But uh, I'm really deeply touched by uh, the transformation of the risk going to, to the heart and being vulnerable. It's just an amazing transformation for me to, to witness that. Among people you've worked with, have you seen many of them go through kind of radical changes in their outer lives the way you did? Job, marriage, that kind of thing? It happens. Yeah. Not most of the time, but it happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you're working with people, like on a retreat or any, and however you work with them, do you prescribe something for them to do on a daily basis, such as meditation or some kind of self-inquiry or something, or do you mainly just work with them when they're with you? I usually do not give homework to do. <laughs> I'm not into homework. But at the same time, if there's like a thinking pattern who is kind of destructive or, or uh, creates uh, suffering all the time, I will probably suggest to put a tag uh, on the fridge and remember just to see that that pattern is coming back. But no, I'm not into homework. And a little bit earlier when you were talking about settling into the simple reality and just realizing that everything arises from love, kind of reminded me of Byron Katie a little bit, you know, loving what is. And she, of course, has attempted to um, have a, a systematic process that people can practice independent of her in order to realize, you know, what, what she's talking about. That's where my question came from. I wonder if you had any kind of little procedures you developed that people could do on an independent basis. Well, of course, I have guidelines like suggesting to be authentic, to take responsibility for the inner emotion that is there, encountering the emotion from an open heart. There are many things that I suggest to develop on a daily basis, just to open to what's vibrant inside and to acknowledge what is there. I suggest things, but I have the strong belief that everybody has inside what is good for them. And if it resonates, well, it, it will happen. And if it does not, well, it can be even violent to say, you know, to give homework that is not aligned. Yeah, that's a good point. It kind of sounds like you're saying that any sort of external prescription might be hard to match properly with the needs of you know any large number of people and that people are going to sort of know from an inner impulse what they can do and what's right for them yeah i think there's an inner inner wisdom that has to be heard over time you know there's answers there and so we suggest but if it doesn't fit it, it just doesn't fit you know that voice that spoke to you for a couple of years saying you know come on you want to make this your life's work and all does that voice still speak or have you actually fulfilled what it was suggesting you do and so it's just sort of sitting back and letting you do it? It doesn't talk to me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it stopped, I guess, in 2008. Uh -huh. So Probably because yeah. you, had, you, you had sort of signed on for the project and so it didn't need to bother you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I could not give an explanation to that. It's just not there anymore. In your observation, do you feel like there's something happening in society, in the world, on a wider basis that is similar to what happened to you? In other words, people without even, people are sort of just starting to wake up inside. 
through whatever means. I mean, it might not be hypnosis, but whatever they're doing, they're just sort of these, this popcorn effect where people are waking up more and more. There's something in the collective consciousness that seems to be conducive to that. Well, since this happened to me, I can, I can observe that there's a lot of popping up, which is really beautiful. I don't know if it was happening before because my attention was on, not there, right. so I don't know. Maybe because internet is there, it's easier to witness that. I don't know. But at the same time, I think society is kind of toxic, more and more toxic for the soul. And uh, we try to survive to this <laughs> strange society in which we live, where, where we need to have so much possession and, and we need to build up an image and we have to, uh, to be the right, you know, we have to have the right job and we have to be fulfilled by uh, outside. So I guess that is a real strong motor to come back home, to see the craziness of, of those movements and come back home. I have these conversations with various friends about this idea of no self, you know, and um, I know you're, you're kind of an Adyashanti fan and Adyashanti gave a whole course about the falling away of, of the sense of personal self. I don't know if you saw that course. And yet there are other quotes from Adyashanti, maybe they were earlier quotes, where he talks about the idea that it wouldn't even be possible to function as a human being if there's not some sense of a personal self. And yet I have friends who say, no sense of a personal self. And I, I just don't understand it. So it's something I actually bring up in interviews fairly often to help work out my own understanding. I mean, it seems to me that if you, you know, you stub your toe and it's very painful, there's a sense that, you know, there's some kind of localized experience of it. It's not happening to some guy in China. It's not happening to a tree outside the window. It's happening here to this body-mind. You know, you'd rather it were happening to the tree, maybe, because <laughs> <laughs> it hurts. But maybe that's not what is meant by falling away of a personal sense of self. Well, you know, on my journey, there was a point where there was no self, oh. no personal self. The experience of it was no personal self. So I, co I can totally understand the point of view that there is no personal self. But then my journey after that was the invitation to let the soul, the free soul, which is the individual part of, of being, to come back in this body. And for me, the part of the soul is quite precious. It's the most precious thing that we can live here on earth is just being this individual color of the unknown and radiate what we need to radiate while we're here. So I think the personal self is, is uh, really precious. So in your experience, when the sense of personal self had totally fallen away, was that the dysfunctional period in which, you know, it was hard to shop in the grocery store and all? Yeah. I would not say it was dysfunctional because it was functional really well. Sort but, of, yeah. but you were kind of losing the ability to work as a doctor and you needed your kids to pick out the groceries and you know, there was, you were not totally functional as, as you once had been and maybe as you are now. Yeah, as we are conditioned to be, it was different, but it was functioning well, mm -hmm. I think. There's a way we see that things are functioning okay, but it seems to function very well. But anyway, that was that phase where there was no personal self, right? Where you, yeah. And then as the sense of personal self began to come back in, what was that like? Um, did it come in like 
boom like that or just sort of gradually incrementally gradually it made me realize that it was safe for the soul to come back here so there was a sense of fear i think fear of the soul of coming back here so i guess the soul was was gone you know it was elsewhere was where life could be safe the scraping of ego and all this period was scary for the personal self mm. and uh, i guess it, it just went away to take it easy for a while and then <laughs> and then the, the invitation was was to come back here when you say soul are you equating that with personal self is that what you mean by the word soul yeah i would say so okay just to probe this a little bit more if you don't mind when you were in the no personal self phase if you injured yourself in some way painful burned your finger or something did that tend to bring in more of a sense of personal self or was it still like totally impersonal there was just no there was pain but it wasn't pain felt by anyone i remember hurting my toe i remember banging my toe and there was a sense of something happening on my foot but i had no idea to look at it no impulse and the next morning i saw that it was there there was blood all over wow. but there was no no pain no reaction to that there was no sense of protecting it yeah, that was my only my only experience of physical problem with that that's interesting because i often use pain as an example of how there seems to me there must be some kind of personal self you know because if you if you hurt yourself it hap it happens to you but you just you just kind of shot that argument down <laughs> but that was the only thing so i didn't have a an arm cut a cut or, right. or whatever you know it was a simple thing but it was a uh, strange yeah yeah so now that the soul as you put it has returned if you bang your toe it's like ow oh, my toe you, and you take totally. you, you take care of it right of course and it hurts yeah uh, and it hurts you it hurts della right of course okay. of course and being here you know the you can be touched by the beauty by by the pain by whatever arises in in reality which is beautiful it's even more painful than before because it's just so direct the experience is so direct that it's overwhelming with in intensity interesting but that's the beauty of it now is it a multi-dimensional sort of thing where you know yeah the pain Della feels the pain but there's also a dimension which is impersonal beyond pain and a large part of your awareness resides there or is it really just not so complicated it's just simple reality experiencing what you're experiencing I guess it depends um, it, it varies so I don't know, sometimes there's uh, more silence than experience and sometimes there's only the experience. It doesn't matter. You know, the point of view doesn't matter about what is happening in reality. Yeah, that makes sense. The reason I asked that question is some people say it's kind of like a spectrum where your attention can move back and forth on the spectrum according to the need or the circumstances. And sometimes there might be a real sharp focus on some individual consideration, and sometimes it might be much more universal and transcendent and beyond the personal. And sometimes there's a sense of the integration of the whole spectrum in one, in one awareness. People describe it differently, so I'm just curious what you had to say. I don't know. I, one thing is that I, I do not discriminate a lot 
on how I would experience things. It's just so different from one moment to another, and it's just very simple because it's just the way it is. There's no, uh, there's not a lot of discrimination about that. Probably sometimes my questions tend to overcomplicate the matter because, you know, someone like you is living in a very simple state of awareness and it is what it is and I'm more kind of intellectual and asking all these questions and probing different perspectives and all. It, it probably probably seems like I'm making more of a fuss about it than, I, than needs to be made. <laughs> no, that's fine. It's really interesting. All people are, are experiencing different things and different perspectives and it's beautiful, really. Do you have a sense of continued progress or unfoldment, like a sense of adventure, like, ooh, this month it's this, and now it's this, and there's, there's some kind of exploration still taking place? I think the human experience is, is it's a never-ending story. It's beautiful, uh, I think. There's always opportunities to open uh, the heart even deeper through all what I go through. So for me, it's a never-ending thing. There is something that is obvious that is oneness and consciousness and there's there's only that but from an incarnation point of view it's a never-ending and beautiful experience unfolding by incarnation point of view do you do you mean like reincarnation like we might have multiple lives and keep on growing or you just mean as incarnate beings well i was talking about incarnate beings but i i don't know if there's other incarnation mm -hmm. It would make sense from a point of view of, um, of time, but I really don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I haven't read a lot of what you've written because most of it's in French, but you sent me some translations of little bits of it. And, um, and you talk about being sort of guarded or protected. And, and in this interview, you've also mentioned that. So I was just curious, a snail, for instance, has a shell and mm. it would die without the shell. It needs the protection. Well, I guess we build up a kind of a shell around our hearts or around our person in a certain way due to certain life experiences which we feel protects us from the world. And like snails, do we need to have that protection? And does there need to be a certain development of inner strength before the protection can be dropped? And will the protection just drop off spontaneously once that inner strength has developed? Or are we putting the cart before the horse here? And, and can we just somehow, in some way, voluntarily drop the protection and we'll be okay and the strength will rise to meet the challenges? Well, I guess there is one point. Well, the protection can be just fine. And most of human beings have their protection and they even don't question it because it's just comfortable and that is the way they are. The thing is, the point for me is when the protection are becoming uncomfortable and where we feel that there's a lack of oxygen because we're stuck in something. So being strong or not, it doesn't matter because if you're suffocating in the protection, you will have the impulse to look at that. And I think we totally have the strength because we are life. There's nothing separating us from life. That is the protection that is protecting us from this evidence. So I guess if there is this discomfort and this yearning for oxygen and for being and for simplicity, I think that's the most beautiful gift to, to see that the protection is not needed. There's mm -hmm. nothing to protect. 
Well, we are life, you know, but I mean, you use the word soul, and you know, some souls have been traumatized, have been abused, have been damaged by, you know, rather severe circumstances, and, uh, and, and therefore they throw up protective mechanisms. So I'm wondering if there's, if, if those protective mechanisms are, are necessary for, for them, and how do you best get them out of that kind of shell-bound existence? Uh, is it just by ripping off the shell, or is there some way of inculcating or developing greater inner strength, in which case the shell will become superfluous? Well, I always ask what the people want, because I will never, ever think of removing a shell if the intention is not there. So that's the basic thing. If someone is asking, well, we can discuss together what's there, and is there uh, still something to protect? If so, it's fine. But can we open to the possibility that maybe this time of protection is over or not? But it comes from the, the inner impulse of each individual to, to see if the shell is still important. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice gentle way of putting it. I mean, back in the 60s and 70s, there were these encounter groups that were popular, and they were quite brutal in terms of ripping away people's protections and uh, could be quite damaging for people. But it sounds like that you're going about it, and I, you know, I didn't even think otherwise for a moment, but you're going about it in a very gentle, natural way, which wouldn't traumatize people even further. No, that's really important for me to not to, not to go through a limit that is obviously there. That is basic, basic. The opening of the heart for me is just associated to security and offering a loving environment to offer whatever's real for, for the person in front of me. That's the thing. Even, even if we open totally to the fact that the protection is needed, sometimes it's just that that will make the person realize that it's not necessary anymore because we totally honor what's there, the reality of the moment. It's simple. Here's a question that came in from Dan in London. He asks, it sounds like Della had a journey from, quote, having a sense of personal self, unquote, to, quote, having no sense of a personal self, unquote, to, quote, having a sense of personal self again. Can Della explain the difference between the sense of personal self from before and after the awakening? It sounds like the pre-awakening personal self was more influenced by conditioning from society, whereas the post-awakening personal self is more influenced by her eternal soul. That's a really good question, Dan. Thank you. Well, I think that's right. I think the, the previous personal self was a conditioned self. It was conditioned, it was limited, it was uh, functioning according to society and family and, and personal beliefs. So it was really a limited expression of Della at the time. And it was fine because I was happy and it was a, a, a nice life. So that was nothing to say about that. But then afterwards, you see, there's this free soul who's here and uh, is just enjoying moment by moment the reality of what is and unfolding this joy of being here and being vulnerable and being touched by life. Yeah, Dan's question kind of reminded me of a nice metaphor, which is that the caterpillar has a personal self and the butterfly has a personal self, but in between, in the larva stage, it's all mush. You know, there's, 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 there's no sort of distinguishable 
entity in there. It's just mush. And then the, the imaginal cells kind of create the butterfly, and we end up with a beautiful butterfly. So you, you kind of had to go through that metamorphosis stage, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that if you were to, don't let me put words in your mouth, but if you were to describe your sense of self now and how it functions with your sense of self then and how it functioned, that now there's a I'll let you carry on with this, this, what I'm saying here, but there, there must be just a night and day difference in terms of spontaneity and freedom and qualities like that. Yeah, I think the first word that would come is spontaneity because uh, everything is fresh. There's this laugh inside to discover the moment as it is. There is something really free and, and laughing you know, there's a way of seeing life as everything is a surprise and an invitation to open my heart more mm. all the time. So there's not a lot of thinking, evaluation and judgments and stuff like that. It's just there are thoughts there. There can be a lot of thoughts sometimes, but it's passing. You know, it's, I, I don't I cannot adhere to those process of thinking most of the time, it's just funny, you know, to see all, all this popcorn uh, going on. It's just amazing, amazing to see how life is generous of experiences. So, yes, it, it's quite different. With regard to thoughts, would you say that um, your mind tends to be generally more quiet than it was before the shift? That there might be some extraneous popcorn, as you say, some flurry of mental activity, but is there much less inappropriate or extraneous or unnecessary mental noise going on? Yeah, I would say it's quite, it's really quiet. A lot of silence. Yeah, there's a lot of silence, yes. But even, you know, when there's no attachment to what is going on, it doesn't matter what's going on. I do not believe what's there. Even when I talk to you, everything I say, you know, I know that's a story and, and life is more simpler than that. It's just the moment and then we play at discovering what, what is beautiful in that experiment we are doing. Yeah, I, I said this the other week, that, but in a way there's a, there's a handicap in doing interviews like this because we're talking about something that is kind of so simple and intimate and natural. And, but we can, if we're going to actually have a conversation, we have to use words. And, yeah. and words are a far cry from the actual experience. As if you and I were to sit here for an hour and talk about what a mango tastes like and what its chemical mm -hmm. composition is and what its biological or genetic you know, background is and all that, we can go on and on, but it would be nothing like actually eating one. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but, you know, it's the nature of the medium. We have to use words here. Of course. And one of my motivations for doing these interviews is that by using words, it inspires people to go for the experience. And we get many, many reports of people who have had awakenings listening to interviews or, or going off and spending time with someone I've interviewed and, and undergoing some profound, beautiful shift of some sort. So that's, that's kind of what motivates this thing. Yeah, of course, it's beautiful. Yeah. I think it's important to have uh, some media to, to help people going through this stuff. It's, uh, it's an amazing journey. Yeah. One other thought about your, about thoughts that came to mind, <laughs> thought about thoughts, is do you find that your thought process is such 
that very kind of quiet, gentle impulses just arise from who knows where, and that you find you can trust them to a great extent. They are probably 100%, that they are just natural impulse of what's right in the moment and perhaps creative ideas that come up, I think I'll do this, but they end up just having a kind of a rightness to them that you have come to rely on as being trustworthy. I think so. I think just listening in silence of what arises is quite some wisdom there. There's quite some wisdom there. I think it's good to put our attention on on what's arising mm. before all what how we should think but just listening from silence I think there's a lot of wisdom there yeah what else would you like to tell us I know you're probably not going to come up with a lot unless I ask you questions because that's the way you operate but are there some major things that you like to talk about with people that I haven't thought to ask you on any kind of question about the main message for me is that there is the awakening which is for me is overrated in the sense that there's a lot that ego puts on what is awakening mm. and how it should be and the experiences and the freedom and everything. But reality, coming back to reality, can be a step-by-step -step thing where we can just open our hearts to be touched by life and to meet the emotion that is there and to stop projecting to others what we're feeling and bringing this back inside and opening more and more and more. For me, it's, the, it's a beautiful, lovely path to take responsibility for the oneness we are because we play at being two all the time, but the invitation, and it is possible to bring oneness inside by taking responsibility of what we go through and what we live and questioning the beliefs that create separation and bringing love and light to, to what's there. It's possible and it's a very gentle path to open ourselves to what's inside. Mm. Really beautiful. There's nothing to protect. We can totally embrace protection and realize that there's nothing to protect. So when you say bring oneness inside, I think you, what you mean by that is to experience oneness or live oneness. Is that what yeah, you mean? yeah. Become this oneness inside right, right. that is already there because it's just that the attention plays at two, at being two all the time. Right, being fragmented. Yeah, and the invitation is really to to take the chance to see, uh, is it really necessary to, to play duality? And the thing you said about the ego kind of projecting what awakening is supposed to be and all that, I think that's an important point too. I don't know, I, I kind of see it both ways. On the one hand, a lot of times people dumb it down in, in the sense that they they think, oh, it's just this. Whatever you're experiencing, that's all it is. That's awakening. You're enlightened, you know. <laughs> and I don't know if they're necessarily actually really experiencing things as richly and deeply and clearly as, as one might. On the other hand, sometimes people think, oh, it's this incredible thing. 
if you could see the world the way Ramana Maharshi saw it, you would just be like blown away, and, and you know you'd be having, you'd you'd be seeing angels, and you'd be communing with devas, and and you'd be able to levitate, and all kinds of marvelous things, which probably are not going to ever happen to the vast majority of people. In which case, they're they're going to wait forever for this marvelous thing that they might actually be much more in tune with right now than they realize. Yeah, yeah. Of course, we can see that there's a, a shift. You know, there's something that happened, or it happens spontaneously, or it's a byproduct of surrendering to reality. But if we check all the time, we surrender, we surrender, we surrender, and then we see, is there a shift? No, okay. So then it's not a total surrender to reality because it, it, there is a condition. Okay, I will surrender up to the moment where there's a shift. Hmm. So that's that's ego again. But surrendering to reality and being touched and, and taking responsibility, that's the way. For, for me, that's the way. And the shift is a byproduct. It's something happening when the rest has... There is no attachment anymore that is more important than reality. And also, if you're surrendering and surrendering and surrendering, if you're kind of like beating yourself up with the, the notion of surrendering all day long, haven't you kind of spoiled the spontaneity and innocence of, of living? Is surrender really something you have to do? No, of course not. If you have to do something, there's a problem because the reality is full right now. But it's important to see the position you, you are at the moment. Are you in refusal of reality or not? Because if you are in refusal, you feel duality all the time. Yeah. So it's interesting to look at. But the refusal is totally welcome also if it's there. There's nothing to change, really. But it depends on what people want. What do you mean by what they want? Not what ego wants. But if the yearning is, is to discover reality, even prior to the awakening shift, if there's something a yearning of discovering the true nature of life, this is going to be interesting to look at this position of refusal. That's the veil. We refuse what we want because what we are is already here. So the only thing in the veil is the refusal of that because we say that's not enough. So that's ego, you know, that's ego in the way. And so that, I say ego, but it's a guardian that is playing with us to refuse the moment. So to keep in control and to keep a safe area of knowing what is happening. And so it, it creates a net, like a web like that. So we don't dive into the mystery of life. So, so it, it kind of sounds like you're saying that the more we assert control and try to maintain control and so on, the more we isolate ourselves and, and keep ourselves constrained and, and contained and blocked from the larger reality, that, that life as it is. Yes, yes. We play at that and we don't even realize that we play at being contained like that. It's interesting to look at. Yeah, I mean, couldn't you almost say that that's the crux of it right there is, by definition, awakening or enlightenment or whatever word we want to use, it is a, a relinquishment of individual control and an individual constriction 
and a relaxation into that which is and, and a surrender into allowing nature itself to run the show rather than, uh, than us meddling with it. Yeah. And, and so, in a way, individual effort is counterproductive. It depends. If it's uh, efforts coming from ego to get something else than what's already here, well, it has the positive effect of going towards exhaustion. Mm -hmm. So if that's the path, that's the path. There's nothing to add to that. But if the impulse, the yearning is to, to feel a sense of truth and reality, well, then there's, there are tools that are really helpful to see this game of duality and, and protecting ourselves from our true being. Huh. It, it's really beautiful. It's interesting what you say about exhaustion because there have been a number of cases of people I've spoken with, such as Adyashanti, for instance, who just really applied effort. He was like busting a gut trying to get enlightened. And finally, he just sort of gave up one day. And then he had this, this big shift, this big awakening. In a paradoxical roundabout way, effort can be effective, but it's not the effort itself. It's, it's the, re the relinquishment of it, ultimately, that, that does the trick. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, if the impulse is to work really, really hard, that's the path because it's there. There's nothing to argue about having one path that is easier than another. It's just, just look where you put your foot and that's the path. There's no way you can mistake yourself. There's no way. We're always on the right spot all the time. And it's worth mentioning that there are paths that are effortless from the outset that, that don't involve hitting yourself over the head with a hammer because it feels so good when you stop, but that, uh, <laughs> but that are effortless from the beginning and very effective. So, you know, if one, if one can find a path like that, all the better, perhaps. Of course, if it talks to the inner wisdom, that's, that's great. Yeah. Let's see, a question came in here, and, and my editor friend hasn't sent it to me yet, but sometimes he doesn't get them. So let me just take a crack at it. This is from Zuzana again in London, there's a lot going on in London today. Um, regarding your initial experience with hy hypnosis, did the hypnotist come across other clients who had similar reactions to his uh, or her sessions with you? Um, did he or she believe in alternative paradigms such as past life, afterlife, spirituality, transcendence, which would have influenced his or her way of working with you? Was he or she intentionally guiding you towards extraordinary expansion of consciousness, or was it just a happy accident during a standard routine that wasn't spiritually inclined or, or you know, oriented? And if it was an unusual result for him or her, was he at all interested in exploring what happened to you and how he could use it in working with others from then on? Good question. I don't know. I haven't talked to him after that. I know that he heard what happened to me because he was a friends of friends, mm -hmm. but uh, we didn't talk about it. And I, I don't think that he was uh, on a spiritual path when we met. So, but that's all I know. I, that's all I know. I, I cannot say more about that. It sounds like you were kind of primed, you know, you were just hot, yeah. hot to trot. You were ready to go. And <laughs> it could have, <laughs> could have been something else that might have triggered it for you, but it just happened to be this. Yeah, I think so. It, it feels like that, but you never know. Let me just ask you one more time, is, is there anything else we haven't covered that you feel is important? I always, after I finish interviews, I always think to myself, oh, I should have asked that, and I wish I'd thought of that. So is there anything I, uh, we're leaving out here that you, you, you want to convey to people? I don't know. I think that everyone is perfect just the way 
they are right now. And it's just a beautiful gift to offer ourselves to see the perfection we are already and to see the loving impulse in every action and every thought we have. There is this loving impulse prior to the experiment. So I think it's just so nice to offer ourselves the possibility to see ourselves from a loving impulse. Yeah, that's nice. I remember reading some line from a Zen teacher recently. He, he said to his students, you're all perfect just the way you are, and you could use improvement. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's fun to realize it, too. <laughs> yeah. It kind of works that way, you know? Everything's imperfect just as it is, and yet there's more to explore. Yeah. I think there's a natural yearning to to open to uh, to experience and experiment and to uh, our true nature. I think everything is just here for that. The suffering that is uh, that is here. Everything in society, I think, is calling us to open to who we are, which is beautiful. Even if it's you can see that there's dark energies and stuff like that, which I. I do not see them like that. I see more like a, an awakening impulse of life to open to reality. And if in the big picture, opening to reality is sort of the ultimate motivating force of the universe, then even the dark energies must some, in some way be in service to that. Yeah, that's my feeling. I don't know if it's true, but that's my feeling. Mine too. Mm. You don't seem like the speculative type, but do you have any sort of... Um, feeling about where we're headed as a, as a society? I mean, any kind of new agey perspectives on you know, how, uh, whether some kind of more enlightened age is, is, is on the horizon or don't you want to go there? I don't know. I think, I think it would be fun that there was more, more consciousness arising. I think it would be really great. I think the invitation is here for that. Where it's going, I have no idea. Yeah. I think everything's is fine, but I have no idea where we're going. But it's interesting to be part of it, isn't it? Yeah, it's really fun. I think we are in this very special era here with uh, everything arising and happening and, and internet and ego just with giant structures and stuff. It's really amazing to look at. That kind of um, point is what leads me to believe that we are headed for big changes just because it seems to be somewhat unprecedented that we've had such a explosion of spiritual teachers and people having awakenings and a, a technology to disseminate this information all over the world to millions of people. You know, there's never been quite that combination of factors before. And mm. I kind of feel like it can't help, help but have an effect. Everything has an effect, and and the changes that take place in individual consciousness do ripple up to the larger society. So it gives one hope, I think, for a better time coming, but also pretty major changes coming because there's so many things which won't fit in really well with with a more enlightened society by most people's definition. Yeah, I think I think it's it's so precious to have uh, like someone with. Uh, with a distance from ego that can be just transparent and authentic and and being free and spontaneous is just it's just so much fun to look at and i i think it's it's refreshing for everybody to have people around coming 
with this new energy. I think it's it's really precious to offer uh, authenticity to our society today. Yeah, I think it's what we really need in terms of. Uh, well, there was a song years ago. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. <laughs> That's the only thing that there's just too little of. Yeah. That's so true, you know, we're lacking of, of this joy of, of just being and uh, I think we're invited to, why not, to play a little bit more of that. Yeah, I was about to wrap it up and another question just came in, so let me just see what this one says. It's again from Zella in London. Um, yeah, okay, this sounds like a good question. Um, regarding your transformation, it sounded from your conversation with Rick as though, as though the process was sort of happening, unfolding and running its course within you, so to speak. A guidance that was later recognized as none other than you led you itself to greater freedom, authenticity and recognition of reality as it is and its ultimate perfection. Do you think that had it not been for the initial wake-up call at the hypnotist that would have found another way of waking itself up? Can we force it or are we ultimately at the mercy of a process that is beyond us? It will wake us up when it wakes us up and not a second earlier, not a moment later. Is there really anything that we, it, can do before it decides it's time, before it is ready? Well, that's a really interesting question because it depends on what is talking inside the inner wisdom because if the mind wants to be in control if the ego wants to be in control there's no way because it's the obstacle of opening to our true nature but inside at the same time there is this oneness it is who we are so if there's a yearning uh, there's a calling well there's no way we can avoid doing the steps we do even if the mind will say, you know, there's nothing to do, it will do. It, mm. it will go towards the yearning, whatever strategies uh, you will find right, but it will happen. So it can be a guardian of the mind saying there's nothing to do, because saying there's nothing to do, there's also a refuge where there's not opening because there's nothing to do. You know, it's a safe place for the guardian. To do there's nothing to do but at the same time if it comes from the heart and there there's humility of the heart that says there's nothing to do and there's nothing to add that's different i think you're making a very subtle and profound point it's one i've thought about a lot because there are a lot of people around saying there's nothing to do and nobody to do it and it can lead to a sort of a passivity or defeatism or something or like oh well uh, there's nothing to do it's just going to happen if it happens and kind of a spiritual laziness in a way but there's a sort of a deeper more profound sense in which there's nothing to do which is very much associated i think with the word you've used a lot in this interview surrender which is a totally different matter than when that phrase is used superficially yeah it comes from the heart from a deeper place of course there's nothing to do and there's everything to do but there's for me the most important thing is to take the risk to see what we're playing are we playing are we taking refuge in the ego's mind or are, are we really willing to open to taking the risk of surrendering so it's really important for me to see not even to do because doing is already doing itself it's it's happening whatever we, we think, but are we uh, hiding from our true nature? Are we 
playing duality, that's interesting. The point you made in response to Zuna's, or whatever her name was, her question, is it just going to happen when it happens and without our having any say in the matter? And you said, well, if you have the impulse, if you have the inspiration, or if you have the motivation, you know. Uh, but um, looking at it in a, in a larger sense, if, if again, uh, this sort of awakening or evolutionary development is built into the very purpose of the universe, then everything that happens to us can be seen as being in service of that. Even the difficult stuff can be a kind of a goad or an incentive, you know, moving us toward seeking, you know, release from it, seeking freedom. You know what I'm trying absolutely. to say? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we have so many opportunities. Of course, if, if our life is happy and we have joy, so there's no question about the meaning of life and, and what is true. But if we have difficult stuff to go through, well, we have sometimes the question arising, well, who am I? And what is this for? And so from a psychological point of view, we can have so many explanations, but for a more intimate point of view, that's the way. That's the way to come back home and to see who am I. Yeah. I don't know if this story is, is you know, just sort of metaphorical or, or actual, but there's some spiritual teachers who've said that, you know, the, the angels don't have very much incentive in heaven for spiritual enlightenment because they're so comfortable there. It's so nice, you know, and, <laughs> and, and uh, human life is much more conducive to it, you know, because it, it's not just an easy ride like that. Absolutely. I think there's so many opportunities, like every day we have something that is refusing reality. So that's it. You know, that's it. That's the moment. That's the moment. Nice. Well, I don't think there are any more questions that have come in. And uh, this has been a, a great conversation. So I think we should wrap it up. Any final words before I do that? I think everybody can just trust their inner wisdom, and they're on the right path right away, already in this moment. Nice. All right, so Della's website is DellaInvitation.com, and I'll be uh, linking to it from her page on BatGap.com. And um, you have a book in French, don't you? Yeah, I just uh, went uh, in libraries on January, yeah. So is it on Amazon or anything like that? Yeah, Amazon. All right, so I'll link to it also on Amazon so people can get that. And um, they can go to your website, and there are parts of your website that are in French and some in English. And when you conduct retreats and stuff, do you do it uh, in French or English or both or what? Well, for now, it, we, have, we had French groups, but we're open to uh, English groups if, if there's a need for that. I'm sure there'll be interest, um, so you might need to set up both. And you, your English is probably as good as your French. I mean, you speak English perfectly well, so. <laughs> I feel it's not my mother tongue. I suppose training as a doctor, you had to learn English or speak it well to, to go through medical school. Yeah, well, I, ha I work in British Columbia and New Zealand, so I, I learned to speak English. I had to. Okay, so thank you, Della. And... Um, People can go to your website to find out more about you. You probably have some mailing list they can get on and so on. Of um, course. And thanks to those who've been listening or watching. Let me just make a, a general wrap-up point or two. Um, this, as I said in the beginning, is an ongoing series. And if you found this interesting, then go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu and you'll find 
um, hundreds of other interviews um, categorized in various ways. If you'd like to be notified each time there's a new one, then there's a sign-up form on the website for that. There's also an audio podcast of this and a, a page that you'll see a link to where you can sign up on Android devices or Apple devices and so on. The donate button, as I mentioned in the beginning, helps support the thing. It's important that it have that support because it's pretty much a full-time occupation for my wife and I. That's about it. So thanks for listening or watching, and we will see you next week.